God hears our prayers and he asks us to ask him for things. And it seems as if the story of the Bible and the story of people of faith is that uh, God just wants to lavish things on us, but somehow he's orchestrated the world and humanity that we have to ask. So in just asking for God to open the eyes of the people's hearts in your group, I believe God will do that for all of us. And this may be the only time during the week that some of you have actually been prayed for in a specific fashion. So I don't, we're not doing that simply for the touchy-feely of holding hands, because like I said, I, I'm not a touchy, I hate touchy-feely. Um, but when we, whoever prayed in your group, when they asked something, something transpires in the invisible world, we believe that God hears, and of course God's going to respond when his children say, would you give us insight, would you give us wisdom, open the eyes of our heart, we want to see you. So in what you just did, thank you. I, I believe our your my days, your days, your weeks will be different because someone prayed that for you. And again, I've encouraged people that's a real simple, it takes 15 seconds maybe to pray that prayer for yourself, another five seconds to pray it for other people. Just open the eyes of their heart, open the eyes of even people in your family, people you like, people you don't like, the cashier at the grocery store, the waitress at Applebee's. You don't have to pray out loud. You don't have to put your hand on your shoulder. Just say, Jesus, would you open? I mean, in your own head, open the eyes of our heart. Um, because we believe Christianity at its core is a supernatural religion, which it is. It's not a moral religion. It's not a political religion. It's not a behavioral religion. Supernatural, which means we need supernatural interaction from God in our bodies and our souls and our beings to help us understand who he wants us to be. So, hey, just one other quick aside, too. Um, this is just a kind of a... Uh, church language thing Sadie said and Daniel off Daniel said this morning too that we put our tithes and offering in the green thing back there some of you may, if you don't know the word tithe t-i-t-h-e it means a tenth that was a biblical term some of you may think we're saying ties like ties like wh why are you putting your tithe so if you don't know the word tithe means just don't get that confused because I I'm, I'm a real big one for sometimes in churches we say things that the average person is like I don't know what you're talking about who put your tithe who put, who put their tie in the thing tithe. I mean, I'm doing this, but tithe is one-tenth, so anyway. Hey, let's, uh, let me just pray briefly, and we're going to look into the gospel today. Jesus, would you open the eyes of our hearts? Because um, your word says that you want to open the eyes of our hearts so we can see uh, what you offer us as an inheritance as your children. You open the eyes of our hearts so we can see hope Ultimately, you also open the eyes of our hearts so we can see in a realistic, day-to-day, -day, practical way what it means to have a relationship and a friendship with Jesus. That's why we're here this morning. We're not here to go through religious motions or spiritual-sounding exercises. We're here because we want a friendship with Jesus. And we ask this all in his name. Amen. Hey, I want to jump right in to, uh, to a, a, the, one of the opening segments of Mark chapter 1. We started this last week, but this will be like the early part of the chapter 1. I'll explain some of the context in a second, but put it up on the screen, all right? So uh, if you remember last week, Jesus came onto the scene just brief, uh, you know, briefly introduced, and then this particular passage and the rest of the chapter kind of is the first kind of description of Jesus in ministry, like his first day of ministry, his first kind of coming out party, so to speak, as, a, as somebody who was going to be changing the world. And I don't mean that in a trite way. But this is what it says. Uh, later on, after John was arrested, 
Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. So again, this is like the intro to the ministry of Jesus. Jesus preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. I want to stick on this passage just for a second because I think it's good to ask kind of the obvious. Just click on the next slide here. Because the question is, what is the good news? And you might be like, well, that's kind of like obvious. But but what, what is the good news? What did Jesus come to proclaim? The good news in, the, in this particular translation is the same word that's translated gospel. The word gospel and good news are interchangeable terms. They're both translations of the same Greek term, which the Greek term is where we get our word evangelize from. The good news, the evangel, the evangel good news gospel. So people will often talk about the gospel, the good news, but sometimes it's good to step back and ask a question, well, what is the good news? Because if I'm honest and you're honest and we see around us, there's different people's versions of what Jesus' mission was. So go to this next slide here. So here's a couple different options. Uh, the, f- uh, the far left picture, in that case, the good news is Jesus came to get us in line, to have family values, to be good Americans, and just be all around good moral people. So the gospel in that case is the gospel of morality, family values, and well-behaved children. All right? But let's be honest, that is the gospel to some people and some churches. Okay, the far right is Jesus kind of painted as a revolutionary. And the gospel in that vantage point is Jesus came to change, to create world political revolution. He came and he's all about social justice. He came solely to right the wrongs and to make uh, economic equivalency and care for the poor. And some of those things are true. Some of those aren't true. But what becomes is that becomes the focal point of the gospel. Jesus came to change the world politically and economically. All right. And you'll hear that gospel even today in various ways in America, around the world, in Bloomington. The bottom billboard, which you've probably seen billboards like that. I think I took that picture somewhere along 37, or State Road 37. Okay, is the gospel simply avoid hell and repent? Is the gospel, well, Jesus came. He died on the cross. If you believe he died on the cross for your sins, you go to heaven after you die. Is that the gospel? Is that the good news? Hey, you just trust Jesus. Say this little prayer. You go to heaven after you die. To some people, that's the good news. Heaven after you die, if you say the right prayers and do the right behaviors. Right? So all these are kind of versions of what is the good And Again, the question is, why did Jesus come? And what's he want, to, what's he want from us? What did he came to die for? Because in these Gospels, you know, the Gospel is it's either some of these Gospels, the Gospel of moral behavior, it's the Gospel of political uh, equality, the Gospel of getting out of hell, going into he- go to heaven after you die. And Jesus didn't come, give his life for any of those Gospels. 
Those are all incorrect gospels. And, and, I'm, and I'm saying that because we have to ask the question, okay, what did Jesus think he came for? And what did the people who heard him, his original off audience, what did they understand that he meant? One of the first principles of understanding and interpreting the Bible is what's the context? What, did the, what was the original setting like and what did they think he was saying? So that's what we're going to look today because this is the Gospel of Mark. Go to the next slide here. Last week or two weeks ago, I started a series called Seeing Jesus, which is in the Gospel of Mark. And how do we get a clear picture of who Jesus is? We've been told a lot of things. We may have even been told things in churches. I may have even told you things that may be incorrect. I hope not, but it's possible. But the question is, okay, if we want to see Jesus clearly, we have to see what the Bible says about Jesus and understand it in the proper context and then go from there and figure out how do we see Jesus clearly. The Gospel of Mark was written by a man named John Mark. I said this a couple weeks ago. He was a friend, a traveling companion of Peter. Remember Peter? Peter was one of the original disciples. Um, this book was written out probably about 30 years after Jesus had died. Probably about the time, actually, that Peter also died. Peter, uh, I think, was crucified upside down. He was martyred because he talked about Jesus too much. The Romans didn't like it. So Mark was probably encouraged by his friends and peers, hey, you need to write down all the stuff Peter told you about Jesus. Because at that point, it was oral history. They didn't have, like, email and text. They couldn't say, wow, I just saw Jesus heal somebody. You know, it wasn't like that. LOL or oh, my gosh or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever you we text. So John Mark is writing all this down from the stories that Peter had told him. And he's writing it to Christians initially who lived in the city of Rome. That's where Peter was killed. Things were not going well for Christians in Rome. There was some movement of, of people, including some of the ruling people, that were blaming the Christians for social problems. The Christians, they're not, they're not behaving like the rest of us. They don't worship the pagan gods like we do. They're the social outcasts. They're, they know. And there were a few times where Christians would get killed and things. And so you have these Christians in Rome who are starting to ask questions like, are we, are we doing this right? And who, who is Jesus anyway? And is this right? What does it mean to follow Jesus? So this book was written in that context. So in one sense, I want you to imagine that you are Christians in Rome and things aren't going as you thought they were supposed to go for you as followers of this man named Jesus who you were been told died and was resurrected 30 years ago and things around you are kind of getting sticky and messy and even challenging. Like it may challenge you, your safety, your, your well-being. So let's just go, go to the next passage here. So uh, this opening chapter, so Mark writes his opening chapter. It's basically, it's his first writing down this is the mission of Jesus. This is what he's all about. So chapter one is, boom, this is what he's all about. Jesus' opening sermon in a line is, the kingdom of God is near. He repeats that phrase over and over. In the other gospels, he calls it the kingdom of heaven. It's other, other, but that's Jesus' one-line sermon. The kingdom of God is near. And, and the original hearers, again, to go back to the original hearers, Right away, they would have thought, King David, the glory years. Because a thousand years earlier, all, all Jewish people knew that when King David was king over, is, over Israel, it was the way life was supposed to be. Life was, it was the life you and I have always wanted. It was 
the king was good. I mean, the people were taken care of. There was provision. Life was great. So for generations, Jewish people had been taught to believe there will be a day where we will reha- we will have the good old days again, and good old days in a really powerful way. Again, think of the life you've always wanted, where good is reigning, people love each other, forgiveness, generosity, all those things. So when Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, he, he gets the hearing of people. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What's he saying? He's saying something dramatic is going to happen now, and the life you've always wanted is now accessible to you. Now, again, the, the average Jewish person in the days in, of Jesus, they were occupied by the Romans. It's not like Nazi Germany occupying France. So they're thinking right away, oh, he came to kick out the Romans. Go, Jesus, go. He's going to kick their butts. He's going to get them out of here. But whatever they thought, they knew he was saying something dramatically different was now about to change. It was a radical thing he was saying. He wasn't reciting nice poetry. He was talking in terms of revolutionary language. And the average person in that day, the average ordinary person in that day, the Jewish person, they knew that. They knew Jesus was getting at something. So in chapter 1, Mark goes on to explain a handful of events on this first kind of, really the first weeks of Jesus' ministry. And again, he's trying to, from the very beginning, help people understand this is what Jesus came for. So this phrase, the kingdom of God is near, that's going to be the overarching phrase for every one of these little micro stories that show up in in Mark chapter 1. Because I want you to then, as smart, intelligent people, ask yourself, okay, if that was what he preached, the kingdom of God is near, and then he does these things, What do those things tell us about why Jesus came? Because we're smart people. We can think, well, what what does this tell us? So let me just jump right in. Okay, so the first part, Mark chapter 1, the very first story, uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 16, this is what we find. Jesus calls ordinary people to his mission. It says, one day, this is uh, verse 16, one day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, He saw Simon and his brother Andrew throwing a net from the water, for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come follow me, and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once, and they followed him. A little farther up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat repairing their nets. He called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father, Zebedee, and the host in the boat with the other men. So right away, he announces this whole big kingdom of heaven is near. And then he enlists not intelligent, powerful people to be a part of his mission to the world. He enlists relatively uneducated, ordinary nobodies. Fishermen. I mean, they were, he didn't, he didn't go to the Pharisees, the rabbis. He didn't go to the strong, the powerful, the smart, or the wealthy. He enlisted ordinary people to his mission. If nothing else, that ought to encourage all of us that there's nobody here that God can't use. He doesn't look for the skills or talents you have. He looks for your willingness to respond to him. And you'll notice he called these, and it says that once they left. Now, we have the sense that they may have known of Jesus before. It wasn't just like, oh, who's this guy? Oh, we're going to go follow him. 
But there was a sense they knew now was the time to make a decision. And they left their life behind to follow this itinerant rabbi who was promising to change the world. So the first description of the kingdom of heaven is near that we see is Jesus enlists ordinary people to be a part of this massive world revolution movement. Second thing in this chapter, the next couple of verses, uh, he teaches with authority. Let me read what the scripture says next in this passage. Jesus and his companions went to the town of Capernaum, the small town near where Jesus grew up. When the Sabbath day came, he went to the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of the religious law. Now, what does that mean to teach with real authority? Does that mean he talked like this, like he knew what he was doing? Is that what it means to teach with authority? I'm <laughs> I teach a class at IU this semester, and after my class is done, I can hear the class next to mine. Um, and, and I don't know who the guy is, and maybe he's a good teacher, but that's how he teaches. Okay, class, what we're going to do right now is going to do this. Is that authority? Loud and a little bit of a British accent? Is that what it means to teach with authority? Or do you have to be like, let's go? Is that authority? What, why were they amazed? Because he taught with authority, not like their teachers. See, in this case, the whole, the whole idea of authority is he taught with kind of this refreshing freedom. He wasn't trying to impress. He wasn't trying to show how much he knew from this rabbi writer and that writer and this writer. And the people could tell he not, he's not trying to impress us with all that he knows. He's just trying to help us understand God. And they're like, if he had passion and awareness and he was connecting to the people he was teaching, and they're like, this is amazing. Nobody's taught us like this before. They were used to people who were talking about all they knew and referring to the smart people. And, but Jesus is talking from his heart with full intellectual connection and full passion and full freedom. He doesn't care. He doesn't care if he gets tenure or not. He doesn't care. He's fully passionate. And he's, and so again, kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus recruits ordinary people, and now he's teaching in a way that is refreshing to ordinary people. They're like, we get this guy. This guy's different. And it says they were amazed. All right, let's go on. Next thing John talks about. Suddenly, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit began shouting, Why are you interfering with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. This demon says, You are the Holy One sent from God. Right away, again, think of the Christians in Rome who are reading this. They're wanting to know, is Jesus really unique? Because we're surrounded by pagan gods who are telling us to worship this and just kind of drop Jesus down to be tolerant of everybody else. But right away, Mark's including this story. No, even the demons know who this guy is. You're the Holy One of God. Jesus cut him short. Be quiet. Come out of the man, he ordered. At that, the evil spirit screamed, threw the man into convulsion, and then came out of him amazement again there's that word again amazement gripped the audience understandably and they began to discuss what had happened what sort of new teaching is this they asked excitedly he has such authority that even evil spirits obey his orders 
Then news about Jesus spread quickly throughout the entire region of Galilee. So the first miracle Mark mentions is this confrontation with the invisible world of evil. And you might say, okay, this is kind of weird. This is weird meter stuff. Evil spirits, demons, screaming. The Bible talks about it as if it, this is exactly what happened. And again, we say we believe in the invisible world. And in the invisible world, we believe there are spiritual realities. There is God, the Holy Spirit, and his angels. And they are constantly being opposed by Satan. The Bible teaches that really clearly. It's not fairy tale. It's not like an explanation for mental illness. But right away, they're thinking Jesus came to kick out the Romans. Jesus knows that. Jesus is coming to free people from the clutches of Satan. To deliver somebody from Satan's power. And in this case, it's like, wow, right away. This is, a, this is different. Not only is he teaching with this incredible freedom and refreshing authority, but he's got this supernatural power. Who is this guy? Goes on to the next one. Let's go on to Mark chapter. And this time he heals physical sickness. So he, he casts out this demon. Then it says, after Jesus left the synagogue with James and John, they went to Simon and Andrew's house. Now Simon's, Simon's mother-in-law was sick, so Simon is also Peter. And again, Mark wrote this. He got his information from Peter, who was already dead at this point. So Peter's probably telling this story. He went to my house, and my mom, my mother-in-law was there. I'm just, I'm, I'm mother-in-law. He, I, I don't really like her, but she's sick, so did he do anything? I don't know. Maybe Peter, maybe he liked his mother-in-law. I love my mother-in-law. Just to make sure that that's clear here. They went to the, uh, Simon and Andrew's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. They told Jesus about her right away. So he went to her bedside, took her by the hand, and helped her sit up. Then the fever left her, and she prepared a meal for them. So boom, supernatural physical healing. That evening after sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. The whole town gathered at the door to watch. Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. But because the demons knew who he was, he did not allow them to speak. So he's healing physical sickness, supernatural power. He's casting out demons, supernatural power. These are the things that, from the very get-go, Mark wants to communicate to people who are following Jesus. This is Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. His, his opening message, his ongoing sermon, his one-line sermon was, the kingdom of God is now here. And then he displays it by calling ordinary people, teaching with incredible freedom, supernatural casting out of demonic influence in people's lives, and supernaturally healing physical sickness. So you can already see a little bit the picture Mark wants to make sure we understand about Jesus. This is no ordinary man. This is no ordinary human being. Because right away, it's in conflict with what these Christians in Rome 30 years later were being challenged was, well, you know, you're Jesus. He's not even more special than our gods. And can we just kind of keep them all even? Let's be tolerant of other people's. Let's coexist. But Mark's saying from the get-go, no, no, this Jesus is unlike anyone else who's walked the earth. And it goes on. The next, this is before daybreak, the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. I mean, we've had pretty busy first day, or first few days. 
Later, Simon and the others went out to find him. When they found him, they said, everybody's looking for you. <laughs> You're the miracle man. You're the healer. You could charge for admission. But everybody's looking. People want to get healed. They want to be touched by Jesus. So Jesus replied, we, we must go on to the other towns as well. And I will preach to them too. That's why I came. So he traveled throughout the region of Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. And what I put up here is he rejected the temptation to be popular. You know, he, th- he, he casts his demon out, and then he tells, don't, don't tell anybody what just happened. It's like, why does he tell people that sometimes? Why, when the, when the disciples are like, Jesus, people are looking for you. We've got to go, gotta go back and do some more. And he's like, no, we've got to go in other towns. I, I came. My mission was not to win a popularity contest. My mission was not to be the miracle man. My mission was not simply to wow people with supernatural power. That's not my mission. Jesus knew that. And you think about even religious leaders throughout the past of various world religions, and Jesus says, I could have all the popularity and social power I want. And he says, but that's not why I came. I didn't come to be a social activist. I didn't come to wow people and to bring change simply to their physical lives. So again, right away, Mark's including that in these first opening days of the ministry of Jesus. And the next and the last story from this opening first chapter is this. Starting with verse um, 40. A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus begging to be healed now leprosy you may know you may not know leprosy was a skin disease we don't know exactly what the nature of the skin disease was but we do know that if you had leprosy you were isolated you were sent to live with other leprous people because it was whatever they had was thought to be incredibly contagious and you know lepers leprous people would start to lose feeling in their limbs they might lose fingers just it was a horrible disease physically, but what was even worse was the social isolation that in those days was necessary if you were a, if you had leprosy. So, you know, put in your mind, kind of get in your head if you were a leprous person. I don't want you physically suffering, but you have been isolated from friends, family, community life, social life. There's no social programs that pay for leper education. There were no leper universities. It was a horrible existence. So you got the physical, you got the social, but on top of that, they were not allowed to even go near the synagogues. It was thought that they had done something that brought this punishment on them, so they were even cut off from God. Supposedly, by the religious elite, they cut them off from God. So you can imagine the kind of life a leper would lead. If you were a leper and other healthy people were coming down the road, you were required, of when they came within so many feet of you, you had to yell out, unclean, unclean, because they knew they needed to walk around you. So to come even close to a leper, let alone touch one, not only was seen as medically or physically dangerous, but it was a major spiritual taboo. You don't go around those kind of people, because you'll be unclean to, for yourself to go to the synagogue. So every good Jewish person knew you don't, interact with them because that might defile you religiously and every good Jewish person knew you don't come close to them because you might get what they have so with that in mind 
this guy comes to Jesus. He begs. He kneels in front of Jesus. This leper's already breaking rules. He kneels in front of Jesus. And you know what Jesus did not do? He didn't go, whoop, 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 whoop. I'll talk to you from a distance. You get the sense that Jesus wasn't, he didn't jerk back. He didn't like, huh? Even though physically, spiritually, socially, everything in his being should have done that, but he doesn't. He begs Jesus, if you're willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said. Moved by compassion. And then the word there is kind of, it also sometimes is translated anger. Because it's that stirring in your soul that's so deep that something's wrong with the world and you're going to do something because of it. It's the compassion that comes from knowing something's wrong. So it's not like anger. He's not angry at this leper saying, get away from me. It's more of the deep emotion that's like, this is wrong. Moved with compassion, Jesus reaches out and he touches the guy. He didn't have to touch the guy to heal him. Major spiritual taboo. But we'll see over and over in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is always, always pushing the spiritual taboo. Because they were, they were man-made taboos. I am willing, he said, be healed. Instantly the leprosy disappeared and the man was healed. Then Jesus sent him on his way with a stern warning, don't tell anyone about this. Again, that's because Jesus was resisting to be popularity man. Because you know, it's always confusing when he says, don't tell people I just did this. I mean, he's not embarrassed by it. He just doesn't want to become this popular magic healer man. Because he knew that wasn't his mission. Don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required, the law of Moses, for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. But the man went and spread the word, proclaiming to everyone it happened, as a result, large crowds soon surrounded Jesus, and he couldn't publicly enter a town anywhere. He had to stay out in the secluded places, but people from everywhere kept coming to him. So right away, Mark gives us this picture. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is here. The life that you've always wanted, a life with God is now accessible, and this is what Jesus does to display the evidence of it. He enlists ordinary people. He teaches with refreshing freedom. He heals people of physical diseases supernaturally. He confronts the powers of Satan influencing people's lives and, and expulses, e expels them. He heals a man that has leprosy. He challenges religious establishments. So where the kingdom, where the influence of God, the kingdom of God is coming into play, those are the things that happen. Supernatural healings, the work of Satan is thwarted, popularity is rejected, touching the untouchable becomes common. So again, if you're a Christian in Rome and you're undergoing challenges and persecutions, Mark's giving you a really clear picture of this unique guy, Jesus. He's different than any other God that you're surrounded with in Rome. Don't give in to the lie that he's just like every other God. Because this Jesus, he's different. And his mission is different. His mission simply isn't to make your life better. His mission is to heal the world. 
his mission is world revolution, but not touching the political system at all. That wasn't how he was going to change the world. So Jesus is not social justice Jesus, American family values Jesus, get in line morally Jesus, vote Republican, vote Democrat Jesus. Jesus did not come to make America great again. He did not come for hope and change. All right? Jesus did, will not, nothing will change the world through political systems. Because that's the challenge even of the people in those days in Rome. I, I had my, my uh, neighbor, I had a neighbor once that was, uh, he's actually a, a, uh, not an American citizen. He became an American citizen later. But he used to complain to me about who the president was at that time. This is years ago. I won't say which president it was. You might be able to guess. How this president was ruining things for the whole world. And da-da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And even though this guy couldn't vote, he had presidential signs in his yard. And then he finally said, what do you think? Well, when the president he was ragging on was the president in that particular case I voted for. And I said to him, I said, you know what? His name was Dan. I said, you know what, Dan? Let me tell you, first of all, the world, I have, I have, the world will not change because of Republicans or Democrats. I put no hope for world peace in the Republican Party or the Democratic Party or anybody. I said the world, world peace will happen when a man by the name of Jesus has influence and sway in people that are following him. World peace will come when Jesus, and he looked at me like, what are you talking about? I mean, he knew, but I said, now that said, I, I'll tell you who I voted for, but when I voted for that person, I had no hope whatsoever they were going to change the world in the way that it needs to be changed. I had hoped that maybe my checkbook might have more money and I might feel better about the American system of government, but other than that, I had no hope for world peace because he's not the one, Trump, Obama, Clinton, nobody, they're not going to bring world peace. Nobody, Jesus brings the world peace. And so to these Christians in Rome who were struggling with the struggles around them, political struggles around them, and persecution. <laughs> John Mark is saying, "No different. If you're following Jesus, you are—you really are aliens in this world. You live by a whole different ethic, of a whole different kingdom values. Yes, you need to obey the laws of your country, but you live by the laws of the kingdom of God, the laws of forgiveness, the laws of generosity, the laws of if you want to." If you want to be great, you got to be small. If you want to be a leader, you got to be a servant. It's a whole it's an upside down way of thinking. That's what Jesus came to bring in. And that's how Jesus knew he would start to change the hearts of people. See, because Jesus, go to this last slide here. The response that Jesus asks of people, that he asks of you and me, these are the three verbs that Jesus used probably more than any other verbs in terms of his challenge to people. And even in this first chapter, he used all three of these words. Repent, believe, and follow. So if you're asking the question, well, what does Jesus require of me? Whether you've been a Christian for 40 years like me, or whether you're not yet a Christian, or wherever you are, what does Jesus require? What is he asking for? Because he called these disciples, and people start following him, and he's calling them to a radical commitment. Well, repentance simply means you've got to change your way of thinking. If you think that having more money and more friends and a bigger house is going to make your life better, repent of that. You've got to change your way of thinking. If you're thinking this grudge you're holding against this person that hurt you six years ago 
is going to make you a life-giving person, you've got to repent, change your way of thinking. The political system is not going to bring out, bring you hope or joy. Change your way of thinking. So Jesus is saying right away, if you want to, f- if you want to be the kind of person who's radically different, you've got to change your way of thinking from wha- the way the culture around you tells you to think. Then he says you've got to believe, and that believe is the same word we use. In the w- is also translated as trust. He says you got to, you got to trust me. Jesus says, trust Jesus. And then he says you got to follow me. See, because you can change your way of thinking and belief, but following has this active reality of he's going to lead you places you would rather not go. I was reading a book this week, and they called Jesus the great disturber. Kind of an ugly word, isn't it? Disturber. That he was bringing out the great disturbance because to follow Jesus means your life will be disturbed. It means your comfort levels will be challenged and stretched. It means your goals may be altered. Now, please hear me. The promise of Jesus is you will have abundant joy, irrational, otherworldly peace that nobody will ever take away from you. But the way you get there is by following me, Jesus says. Change your way of thinking. Trust the words that I'm saying. Live in an upside-down values that, that the kingdom of God's all about, that generosity, forgiveness. Yes, you do serve the poor, Yes, you do want to act and live in holy ways, righteous ways, joy-filled ways. So yes, you want to be moral, moral people who are social justice people who serve the poor. But he says you, you only get that if you follow me. So some of you, and myself too, you never know when you're going to be on the verge of that next step that Jesus asks you to trust him and follow him. Because it's not just a once-in-a-lifetime decision. It's a lifestyle decision. And so these Christians in Rome who are trying to figure out how do we deal with what we're feeling now, and Peter's dead now, and other Christians may be dead soon, and our culture doesn't like us, and we don't fit. And Mark's saying to them, yes, you don't fit. You don't fit. But you're going to bring in life and love and joy and peace and you will transform the world. world. World revolution will happen when people like you and me, ordinary people, follow what Jesus asked you to do. I, I was I was driving to Bloomington the other day, and I and I don't do this all the time. I'm not. I don't always th- think spiritual thoughts. Sometimes I do, once in a while. And I actually kind of thought out loud, God, what what's it take for you to change Bloomington? And I don't mean change Bloomington from what we like about it. And I don't mean change Bloomington politically. But what would it look like if people who don't trust and follow the influence of Jesus, what would it be like if people started trusting Jesus? I guarantee you social justice would go on the rise. Behavior would go. I mean, joy would go on the rise. But I I think the answer from Scripture starts with people like us. He He calls us to do what he asks us to do in whatever situation we are with the relationships we have. You know, I, I, uh, I'll close with this story that just happened this last week. I thought it was kind of interesting. Because one of the things I've been, I have thought a lot about lately is what would it mean for us as people, as a church, as people, to be used by God more in what people refer to as evangelism. And I'm not going to put guilt trips on you. You should go talk to your neighbors today and t- give them a, slide a Bible under their door. 
but ways in which Jesus may want to use you to talk to someone you know, or maybe that you don't know, about what it means to follow Jesus. And again, I'm not, this is not a guilt trip. This is just a challenge. So just please help me. I, uh, I was talking with, I, there's a grad student I know that I actually had in a class that I taught years ago that wanted to interview me for an academic project he was doing. Um, he's a really good guy. Grew up in, he grew up and had some church experience, but now he's far from God in that sense. But uh, so we were talking about, it was basically talking about the trans, you know, IU changing over from on course to Canvas or whatever they're changing over to. He's like, a, he's got an IT guy. He's asking me all these questions. I'm not a computer guy, and I was telling him, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this. At one point in the conversation, just to make a point about something, I was mentioning uh, that I did a Bible study one time. And this, this, this fit. I wasn't trying to force Bible study into the conversation. But I told him one time I did a Bible study. Because I was, I was making the point that sometimes we tell people things and they don't understand what we're saying. I was in a Bible study one time and some guy hung out after the Bible study after they left and he goes, hey, I have a question for you, Matt. And I said, what's that? He goes, I, from what you just read, it seems like Jesus thought he was God. This was like 10 years ago and I remember thinking, yeah, I thought everybody knew that. Kind of like Geico. Everybody knows that. But he's like, I didn't say that to him, but he's like, I, I didn't know Jesus thought he was God. I didn't know Christians thought he was God. So I'm telling this to this friend of mine this past week, kind of explaining sometimes you can't assume people know things about computers that you think they know. That's so then the conversation went on from there, blah, blah, blah. And then we left, and he was like, I'm done now, and we had to leave. We're walking to our cars. And he got oh, I got one more question to ask you. I thought it was going to be a survey question about his inter, you know, computer stuff. And he goes, did Jesus really think he was God? And I was like, I, I didn't go into that conversation with some evangelistic motive. And I was like, um, yeah, he did. And there's a couple times where he said this, and Jesus said this, and he said this, and this is what, this is why Christians, because Jesus believed he was God. And he's like, I, I never really understood that. And he said, I'd love to talk about it more. And I'm saying that, and you might say, yeah, you're a pastor, you know those things. But I didn't go into the conversation with any kind of evangelistic intent. It just kind of came my way. And I'm meeting this guy this week for coffee because he wanted to talk more about Jesus. And so what I'm saying is, in your ordinary day conversations, you never know when Jesus comes up in a way that you don't even have to force it. It just comes up. You just got to be ready. And because I think people do ask the question, who is, wh why is Jesus unique and different? Because if we have, you know, Hindus and Muslims and Jews and Buddhists and why do, why are Christians different? Now, Christians, we are not better people. Please understand, I'm not saying that. But the central piece of Christianity is Jesus, who Mark tells us and the rest of the Bible clearly says he's a different, totally different, unique, no one like him. And he will share his glory with no other. So I'm going to finish on that. Just a challenge. If your challenge is repenting, believing, or following where you are in your life, but it's a challenge to make sure Jesus stays in front of how you think about what it means to be a Christian. So let's pray. Jesus, I, I, uh, again, just open the eyes of our heart, even this week. Even in our ordinary conversations we have with friends or roommates or family members or neighbors or coworkers, um, 
and would you bring conversations our way and would you give us the courage and receptivity to engage in those conversations that you bring our way um, to talk about our love for Jesus as, as the unique, powerful, loving, forgiving, generous, joy-filled God that he is. That's what we want to communicate to people. That Jesus is waiting to forgive and love. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we finish every...